millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are going to hear all about the Carpathia, the vessel that most famously came to the aid of the stricken Titanic in April 1912, shortly after she had struck an iceberg, leading to the loss of over 1,500 souls. Now, the Carpathia often appears as a bit of a footnote in the Titanic story, but she's a fascinating vessel in her own right and with a wonderful history. This episode features as part of a kind of sub-series of episodes we are running on iconic ships. So do please go back through our back catalogue and check out all of the other wonderful vessels we have covered in our Iconic Ships series. If you're interested in naval history, we've covered the likes of HMS Bellerophon, the Ark Royal, the Hood and the Barham with a tiny HMS Pickle that brought back news of the Battle of Trafalgar. You can find out about old favourites like the Cutty Sark, Mary Rose, the USS Constitution, the Mauritania. You can even find out about iconic ships that you may well have never heard of, like the wonderful San Juan, a Basque whaler. It's one of my favourite episodes. But now back to the Carpathia, the Cunard Line transatlantic passenger liner laid down in Tyne and Weir in those carefree early years of the 20th century, but which ended up at the bottom of the Atlantic off Land's End in 1918. To tell us more, I spoke with the excellent Dr. J. Ludewig, an author and academic who specialises in narrative non-fiction. She teaches writing at the University of the Sunshine Coast and the University of Queensland. Jay is a past Australian Postgraduate Award recipient and her book, Carpathia, the extraordinary story of the ship that rescued the survivors of the Titanic, was published by Hatchet Australia. Of Sri Lankan and Australian heritage, Jay, irritatingly for those of you listening in the freezing northern hemisphere in what is supposed to be spring, lives on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Here is Jay. Jay, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you, Sam. My pleasure. So, Carpathia... Why was she built? Oh, well, 
Back in 1900, Canard had a ship called Corinthia, and she was transporting mules during the Boer War when she ran aground off Haiti. And a couple of months after that, Canard was thinking about replacing her. So uh, they discussed building a new ship to carry passengers and cargo. And uh, from there, they put out a tender. They actually refused everyone that tendered at first, and they ended up asking Swan Hunter to submit an offer because they built Ivernia for they'd built Ivernia for Canard in the past. I love the I love the name Carpathia. Where did that come from? Do we know? Yeah, it's actually named after the Carpathian Mountains. Canard was naming all of their ships after geographical features and regions across Europe during that period. So I that's actually one of the things that I had wondered as well when I was researching the book. Why Carpathia? Yeah. yeah. Have, did you go and visit the Carpathian Mountains? I did not visit the Carpathian Mountains. <laughs> I would have liked to have done so, but uh, I, I went to a lot of archives and museums in the UK. I was, I was a little bit more interested in the places that held all the historical records that would help me write the book than, uh, than um, the mountains. Although the, the most, I suppose, unexpected place that I did visit was Las Vegas because I went to see the Titanic exhibition and all the artifacts all right. there. So that's where they were held at the time. Yeah. Sounds like a great place to go on a historical <laughs> research trip. Yes. So um, Cunard bu- builds this ship, builds Carpathia. I mean, what sort of ship does he want her to be? You know, a super luxurious one or more of a sort of a, an everyman's ship? Well, she was designed to carry immigrant passengers primarily. So when she was built, it was for cargo and primarily third-class passengers looking to come to America to start a new life, but also for second-class passengers because this is about the time when holiday cruising emerged. So they were looking to take sort of middle-class Americans over to do the whole Mediterranean tour. So what do we know about how she was kind of fitted out on the inside? I mean, it's probably it's maybe even easier for us to imagine what the Titanic was like, because we know it was so kind of unbelievably opulent. But what was a what was a sort of a normal ship like, like the Carpathia? Well, actually, interestingly, Carpathia, when she was built, was one of the what well, was actually the best fitted out ship for third class passengers at the time. So the accommodations on board were far better than you could expect to find on any other ships of the period. Uh, For example, the steerage passengers actually had berths. So there were four, three and two class, two berth cabins instead of just large dormitory areas. They had a large dining room. The men had a smoking room and that was all hardwood panelled. They even had their own promenade deck, which was quite unusual at the time. The second class passengers, it was certainly nothing, nothing like the luxury that we know um, White Star was famous for with Titanic, but it was very nicely fitted out. So they had a beautiful library. That one was oak panelled, if memory serves, and that had lounges and writing tables and, you know, gold tapestry curtains. And uh, even the, 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 the um, gentleman's smoking room for the second class passengers, that had a skylight and... Uh, panelled in walnut so I think they, there was a lot of wood panelling aboard. 
<laughs> she also yes. she also had um so she was fully had electric lighting heating ventilation system and then actually a few years after that they did a refit in about in 1905 for first class cabins as well so they just reconfigured to add private first class cabins on the uppermost deck but they didn't reconfigure any of the saloon um, areas mm. so it's still very kind of socially uh, rigidly defined, isn't oh, it? Even, yes. even though it's it's not this kind of top end of society, there's still a lot of um, yeah, of, of um, oh, yes. division, isn't it, there? It, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I mean, we'll talk about the rescue of the Titanic passengers, but certainly a normal voyage. If you were in steerage, you had steerage sections, and there were there were gates along the promenades areas you could not cross over. If you were a steerage passenger, you couldn't go into the second class or the saloon class passengers areas. And that was true of all ships during that period. And it was um, it was uh, quite strict because social classes were still very much observed during that uh, during that time. And what about the building of her? Where was she actually built? Do we, do we know much about that whole process and experience? Yeah, she was built in Swan and Hunter shipyards, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And mm. uh, the process began with uh, it was September 1901. And so they laid the keel down. And what they do is they construct the hull of the ship in these massive wooden gantries. And there's actually a photo I if, if you just Google Carpathia, it's, you can see it online. There's, a, there's this wonderful photo that I've seen where there's the, the ship being constructed in this massive wooden gang, um, gantry and there's this plank scaffolding going up to the deck. And if you, you have to look really, really closely and there's this really tiny man standing on the scaffolding to give you an idea of the scale. So they built these ships alongside the river and when um, they were ready, they'd launch them. So she was launched in August of 1902 and then there was a period of fitting out. So that's when they're constructing the superstructure and doing all the internal fittings. And that was actually delayed a little uh, a little while because there was a joiner strike during the period that, um, that held things up. But she was eventually ready by May 1903. Then she went on her sea trials and her maiden voyage, which was to Boston. Oh, very nice. A nice trip through Boston. What, from Liverpool? Uh, yes, yeah, so set out from Liverpool and she went um, all the way up around the top of the UK doing sort of a sightseeing voyage and then all the way down um, across to Boston. Oh, lovely. And then did she go into this um, kind of immigrant... Uh, migration helping service straight away. Yeah, it, that, it, essentially that's what she did. For most of the years of her service, she was carrying passengers back and forth from the continent across to America and then taking those second-class passengers off holidaying around the Mediterranean, you know, Naples and Paloma and Trieste and, and doing um, the whole sort of Mediterranean sightseeing trip. It was a, during that period of time, it was actually um, a really popular thing to do. So it's like a, a, a chapter in the early history of going on a cruise. It was. It, it was. So so what you have to remember is there was a certain period of time when transatlantic steamships were the main form of transportation between continents. But the more that, you know, the flight industry evolved, the more we relied on flight rather than ships to take us 
Um, anyway, so now we use cruising primarily as a leisure activity, but that was the transition period when they were going from a form of transportation to a form of entertainment. Hmm. Fascinating to go, but go back to on board that ship as they were cruising around the Med in that period. Quite extraordinary, um, you know, before the wars. So um, let's let's move on to to Titanic. And um, paint a picture of just how different Titanic was to Carpathia. Oh, <laughs> just about as different as you could get. You have to remember that, um, you know, when Titanic was built, we're talking more than a decade later. And during that period, we actually enter the era of the superliners. So Titanic was not just far, far more opulent. She was significantly larger than other ships. So by by the time we get, you know, Olympic and Titanic, we're talking these superliners, which they were the first of their kind ships that big. So it's almost like a a little city. They were carrying thousands of passengers. They were designed for, I mean, Titanic was designed to attract the wealthiest of the wealthy, to give that luxurious experience. And by this time, you know, Carpathia, as comfortable as she was, she's an, she's an older ship by this time. She's much smaller, much slower. So Carpathia is a 14-knot ship. Um, Titanic's up there, 24 knots or thereabouts. And it's it's like comparing, you know, um, um Oh, I want to make a car analogy here, but I don't know my car as well enough. A Ferrari <laughs> no, no. to a Ford. <laughs> yeah, or, or a Bentley to a Volvo, maybe. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, it, you know, um, it's, it's, it does make Carpathia such a fascinating subject, actually, when you, when you realise there are these, um, just a, a sort of an everyday ship, and it, and it, and it, it touched the lives of so many people. Um, so how does Carpathia fit into the Titanic story? So... During Titanic's maiden voyage, the day that Titanic departed from um, Queenstown, as it was, was the day that Carpathia actually departed New York. So they were on opposite sides of the ocean. Now, as we know, Titanic was um, full of those... those um, they were essentially the movie stars at the time. They weren't movie stars, but they were the, the upper crust of society. And they were... Um, en route to New York on this maiden voyage of the most extraordinarily luxurious and the largest ocean liner in the world at the time. And what should have happened is they should have just been two ships passing in the night. But as we all know, Titanic struck the iceberg. So that happened um, late on Sunday night. So for Carpathia, Sunday was a really ordinary day. They, the guests aboard, they were playing deck games, enjoying their leisurely time. The captain had conducted um, an inspection of the ship. They'd even done a boat drill. About nine a.m. on that morning, they had actually received, a, you know, um, an ice, a message that there was ice um, about, but there was nothing to be concerned about. They were far enough south that it wasn't actually an issue for them. And so that evening, their wireless operator, a young man by the name of Harold Cottam, it was after midnight, his shift had just ended and he was due to go to bed. And he had been up to the bridge just a few minutes earlier to deliver the final report of the day. 
And during that time, the way wireless works aboard ships at this time, if you weren't wearing your headset, you didn't get the messages. You had to actually have your headset on. So when Titanic hit the iceberg, they didn't immediately send a distress call. They first inspected the ship. And when they realized they were sinking, that's when they sent that first distress call. And Carpathia actually missed it because Harold Cotton was on the bridge doing his um, end of day report. It was only when he went back to, uh, and if you actually read um, Home from the Sea, Captain Rostrum's memoir, he, he has this lovely anecdote of what happened. So Harold goes back to the wireless shack because that's actually where they sleep at the time. They have a little berth in their shack. And he's getting changed, so the story goes. And he actually puts his headphones on to just listen to, to everyone, the chatter that's about. And he recalls that he'd had some messages come through earlier that day for Titanic. And because of the way wireless worked at the time, ships had to convey messages from ship to ship if their receivers weren't strong enough to go from ship to shore. So they'd pass those, those messages along. And so he dialed up Titanic and he said, oh, I've got some messages for you from Cape Race. And Titanic replies and says, we have struck ice. And, and Howard Cottom, bless him, says, should I tell my captain? And Captain Rost, and, and um, the, the operator says, yes, tell your captain. So Harold <laughs> Cottom rips off his headphones. He races up to the bridge and he reports to the officer of the watch. Officer of the watch tears down, goes through the chart room, bursts into the captain's cabin without knocking, mind you. And in his memoir, Captain Rostrum actually says he remembers thinking, who was this cheeky beggar bursting into the captain's cabin without knocking? But of course, as soon as they explained that there had been a distress call from Titanic, Captain Rostrum didn't hesitate. And this is what really captured me about this story. He straight away turned Carpathia about and they sailed full steam ahead through pitch black night directly towards ice, trying to reach Titanic before she sank. Now, that was actually a, a perilous journey. And if you re read the transcripts at the British and American inquiries when Captain Rostrum testified, you'll actually see that he says if he had realised how much ice was actually about, um, he would have had second thoughts. As it was, they took all the precautions they could. They put extra watches out, but they actually had some close calls themselves. In the testimony, Captain Rostrum actually underplays it a bit, but there are various sources where they did actually have to take evasive action to avoid ice, particularly as they arrived on scene. So, um, 12.35 was when they got the first distress call and they arrived at the location at 4 a.m. And it was still dark when they arrived and they had seen a green light as they approached and they actually thought it was one of um, Titanic's lights. But as they got closer and closer, Captain Rostrum had said that the doubt had begun to creep in because they know what a ship at night looks like as they're approached from a distance. But all they saw was this, this single green light. But fortunately, that green light led them to the lifeboats. So they found the first lifeboat and they brought that lifeboat aboard at um, 4.05 a.m. And it was then that dawn broke. And when that light hit the surface of the water, they actually saw that they were surrounded by icebergs. For all the world, it looked like they were in Antarctica and dotted among those icebergs were all of those lifeboats with the survivors who were making towards Carpathia. Uh, I recall reading some of the, the passengers' recounts and it was like, um, you know, like an angel coming out of heaven that, that they had seen this ship, which, which was 
if you put yourself in the position of those people in the lifeboats, they had been on what had been touted as, a, as an unsinkable ship and that ship had just sunk. They'd spent the night in the dark with the rising swell, not knowing if help was coming, not knowing if they were going to, to join those people who, had, who, had done, who died aboard Titanic when she sank. Yeah, They're profoundly shocking. I mean, it does make me wonder about people kind of what we would call PTSD now and how long it would take people to actually get over the whole experience, the physical one as well as the psychological. Yes, and in fact, when Carpathia was travelling back to New York, they actually encountered a storm, so late Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and there's a there's a wonderful compilation of, of letters and articles uh, from the survivors... Uh, from beg your pardon, from the passengers who are aboard Carpathia, who actually recount their experiences with all of those survivors, and and some of them really tell how that storm people were terrified because they kept thinking every thunderclap was ice hitting the ship. Mm. Yeah, very difficult indeed. Do we know? I mean, how, so how many many passengers actually came on board Carpathia? So they rescued 712, although wow. when, yeah, it, it, when they did the count on board, the, the count that they did on board was 705, but the official survivor count later was 712. Yeah. They managed to fit them in. Do we, I mean, there were their descriptions of them kind of being bunked down in the corridors. How yeah. did they fit them in? Well, the, the Carpathia's passengers, many of them actually gave up their cabins or those people, they, they um, bunked together into cabins. And in fact, there's one uh, account where a young honeymooning couple had given up their cabin and they hadn't told any of the survivors that they were on their honeymoon because they didn't want them to feel, um, to feel bad about the fact that they had actually um, given this cabin to them. But the, the people aboard Carpathia were the soul of kindness. If you can imagine what it must have been like on that ship, the shock everyone must have felt, the grief, because most people had lost someone that they loved. And and it had just been this, this the most terrible thing had happened to them. And the feeling of, of surviving and then having to leave that site. So a lot of people were actually hoping against hope that there were going to be more lifeboats bringing passengers. And and as the survivors were filling up Carpathia and all the passengers from Carpathia were on deck during the, um, when they were rescuing the survivors from the lifeboats, which was finished by 8am, people were still hoping that there would be more survivors. But at 8am, Carpathia had accounted for all of the lifeboats and the California had arrived on the scene by that time and had stayed behind just in case. But then they had to turn that ship around and leave for New York. And that feeling of, of, of turning the ship around and knowing that there is no more hope. I mean, that's, that's, um, that must be a terrible feeling. So the, the passengers aboard Carpathia, they were the soul of kindness. And there are accounts of not just them, them giving up their cabins and sleeping in you know, the corridors and on the, 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 the tables in the dining halls, but, but the women were sewing clothes and, 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 um, and they were donating clothes. They were sewing clothes out of sackcloth for the, um, out of Hessian for the for the children because this had been the dead of night. Some people arrived wearing their night clothes with no with nothing more than what was on their back. So they'd lost everything. And for the wealthy, those things could be replaced. But for the poor, for those people who were immigrating, a lot of them actually lost everything that they had 
and they only escaped with their lives and they were going to a new world and they had to start from scratch. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's, um, it, it does um really resonate just at the moment, because, you know, watching the news and all of these poor Ukrainian refugees, it's um, very sort of, you know, similar example. You've got some real um, maritime refugees who are completely desperate and, and um, need all the support and help they can get. Yeah, that's um, a, a really apt comparison. I think um, we're, we're, we're going through some really difficult times at the moment, but uh, the, the idea that you have to those people were leaving their homes and those people in the Ukraine, are, you know, they're leaving their homes and they don't know what the future holds for them. The people, the survivors aboard Carpathia, many of them didn't know what the future would hold for them as well. And so many of them had, had lost loved ones as well. Mm. And so, um, you know, Carpathia then uh, sort of goes back to work, essentially. You know, you have to kind of carry on almost as if nothing has happened. I mean, that would be another very difficult thing indeed, I suspect, for Carpathia's crew. Um, so tell us about about her history um, up to the First World War. So after rescuing the survivors, Captain Roshan was actually the first person to testify at the American inquiry because, as you said, she'd had to literally turn around and resume her voyage. And... That voyage was actually um, quite a remarkable voyage. So, so directly after, uh, um, directly after returning the survivors to New York, when she reached the Mediterranean, by that time news had made its way all the way across to Europe, and she was celebrated at every port that she went to. Over a hundred thousand people boarded Carpathia during that voyage at all of the ports because they wanted to see this rescue ship but after that event um she just she she faded back into obscurity over time over the last century so so the the first world war that you that you that you mentioned um when that broke out she was still in service and she was carrying transporting cargo and troops when she was actually 
so she was requisitioned by the Admiralty under the agreement that they had with Cunard at the time. So the Admiralty paid a subsidy to Cunard and in return they were allowed to requisition ships during times of need. And during that period when they requisitioned her, um, she was mostly transporting troops, like Canadian troops and supplies. And it was mostly uneventful, the, her war service, until, the, until I mean, she, so she sank during the First World War. And that story in itself is actually quite fascinating aspect of her history. She, so it was July 1918, and she was docked at Huskisson Dock in Liverpool, and she'd been waiting for a convoy to form because at that, during that period it was safe for, sh- for ships to travel in convoys. And so they set out on, what was it, the, the 15th of July 1918, and they had an escort of seven naval vessels. So there were some destroyers, minesweepers, and um, a patrol gun boat. And they were guarding them through the southwest approaches because that's where the U-boats mostly hunted. But the convoy departed on the seventeenth of uh, on the seventeenth of July, and so they departed first thing in the morning, about a quarter past eight. And it wasn't actually long after that that um, the convoy split in two. Half the convoy was headed towards the Mediterranean, and half were going to the to New York. And Carpathia was the only armed ship on the convoy headed to, I beg your pardon, North America. During that period, they traveled in formations and there was actually, it's, it's, it's so interesting, there was actually a small tanker by the name of British Major who was supposed to be at the head, who was at the head of the first column in the convoy, but she was struggling to make up the speed. So the convoy's agreed speed was 10 knots. And she was also... Um, belching black smoke. So her captain at the time was William Prothero and um, he writes in like his affidavit that were quite concerned about this because that smoke was like a beacon to any um, U-boats that were around. And sure enough, soon after the um, escort departed, Carpathia was struck by a torpedo. And the really interesting thing is that the reason the torpedo, the torpedo struck Carpathia is because British Major, that tanker, was actually out of formation. They'd fallen behind the convoy and the torpedo, which should have hit British Major, actually went straight through and hit Carpathia. How severe was the damage? Did she sink immediately? No. So the first shot actually... The first shot um, didn't sink the ship. She stayed afloat for a couple of hours. There was enough time for everyone to disembark into the, um, into the um, emergency boats. Unfortunately, that first torpedo did actually kill five men. So three trimmers and um, two stokers were, were killed in the engine room during that, either from through an explosion or from drowning when they had to, um, had to isolate that section of the ship. And because of the way the U-boats wanted to conserve torpedoes, they didn't immediately fire again. And Carpathia stayed level enough for them to safely deploy all the lifeboats. So Captain William Prothero destroyed all the confidential documents and made sure that everyone was um, able, who had survived that initial torpedo blast, was able to disembark safely. Um, and it was a couple of hours later, while everyone was in those lifeboats, that two more torpedoes slammed into 
Carpathia. And she sank very soon after that. And there's actually another image that was taken from the German U-boat U-55 that actually shows the very stern of Carpathia above the water as she's sinking. It's actually um, a really incredible image. But um, I mean, this story doesn't, doesn't end there because now we've got all of these survivors in the lifeboat and Titan and, um, and Carpathia has just sunk. Now, when she was hit by the first torpedo, the rest of the convoy had immediately scattered because none of those ships were armed. There was nothing they could do. And Carpathia's wireless system had actually been damaged in that first torpedo strike. So they hadn't been able to send out a distress call. They had signaled to the other ships requesting that they send a distress call, but they didn't know if help was coming. Now, Carpathia has sunk and the U-boat has surfaced and is approaching the lifeboats. Now, U-55, to put this into context for you, had just a few months earlier sunk um, a ship by the name of Belgian Prince. And they had a similar situation. Everyone had escaped into lifeboats. But what, had, what, what the captain of that U-boat had actually done was they'd taken everyone from the, the lifeboats, put them on the deck of the submarine, taken away their life jackets, and then they had submerged the submarine. And there were only three survivors from the Belgian prince. And now that's the same, same vessel, same captain that's approaching our survivors in the lifeboats. And William Prothero, the captain, he knows they're coming for him because they would always take the captain away to be interrogated. But the fate of the other passengers, I mean, they didn't know what was going to happen to them. But given what had happened to the crew of the Belgian prince, I think it's safe to assume the same thing would have occurred. But... Fortunately, just as the U-boat was approaching, uh, one, of the, one of the military vessels that had originally been in the convoy returned. So this was um, HMS Snowdrop. And she had received a distress call from one of the other vessels in the convoy that had been fleeing. And so she came to the rescue. And she actually, even though she was out of range of the U-boat, what she did was she fired towards the U-boat to keep the U-boat from actually opening fire with their machine guns on deck on the survivors in the U in, in the lifeboats. And so she approached and she went straight past our lifeboats and U55 submerged and she actually circled for an hour dropping depth charges trying to sink U55. Now they didn't sink U55 but they did rescue all of the survivors from the lifeboat. So there was only those initial five casualties. Yeah, what a dramatic, dramatic event. Um, let's move on now to finding finding the wreck, because I think this is an ex extraordinary story. Um, how did that all come about? In, in 1999, Clive Cussler, who um, helped found NUMA, became really interested in the idea of locating the wreck of Carpathia. Also the Californian, but the, the Californian sank in, in much deeper waters, um, obviously because these two ships are very famous in connection with Titanic, and he, 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 he wanted to find her wreck. Now, there were a few expeditions. The first expedition, they had found some charts that indicated, they had some charts that indicated what was thought to be the wreck of Carpathia. So they they sent out an expedition and they found this ship, but um, they had actually, it's really interesting because they actually announced that they had found Carpathia, but they, it was not Carpathia they had found. Um, it was another vessel called Isis, so they'd misidentified her. So that 
failed expedition then led to a second expedition in May of 2000. And this time, because that, that first vessel the, the, had that, they had a chart, the, the vessel on that chart had not turned out to be Carpathia. What they actually did was they looked at the logs of U55, also of Snowdrop, so the ship that rescued the Carpathia survivors, and also um, the records that William Prothero made and all three of them listed coordinates where Carpathia sank. Now, obviously, at the time, they're all using dead reckoning, so those coordinates are very general. And what that did was give them a 500-square-kilometre search area that was um, just a couple of hundred miles south of Ireland. And they went and they searched that section of the ocean looking for Carpathia's wreck. Now they weren't actually having much luck. That's, that's that's no no small small challenge, no, isn't it? You no, said 500 it's huge. square kilometers, and it's incredibly deep that water as well, isn't it? Yeah. So when her wreck was discovered, it's over 500 feet down. Wow. So so when um, they were they were searching, it was actually um, there, it was it'd been unsuccessful so far, and a storm was coming. So they had decided that they would. Um, put into port at uh, Baltimore in Ireland. And while they were in port waiting out the storm, they actually visited one of the local dive shops there. And uh, there's a really great documentary on this because they filmed this expedition and it's part of the Sea Hunters series. And when they talked to the dive shop owner, he gave them the coordinates of 17 areas where the local trawlers all avoided because their nets always got snagged there. So they would mark those areas as areas to be avoided. And there's um, a good chance that some of those snags are potentially shipwrecks. So when the storm abated, they actually went back out and they'd had no success over that. So they'd done a grid search of that 500 square kilometer area and they'd started at the top of the grid. And because it is so large, they'd missed out the middle section because it, based on their calculations, it was more likely to either be sort of at the north or the southern end of that search area. And they'd, they'd not found it. So what they then did was they kind of did this jigsaw pattern going from these locations that they had of these 17 areas that these trawlers avoided and it and it, it's it's so interesting because they they'd searched all of them and they just searched the 16th one and they had not found Carpathia and then they're they're losing hope and they come to this 17th coordinate and they find something on the sonar so there's obviously a vessel there and they send down their remote operating vehicle to get pictures of it but there's a fault with the operating with the with the rov and they can't no. actually get any images no they can't so so they think they've found Carpathia, but they actually couldn't confirm it until a couple of months later when they did a third expedition. And that's when they were actually able to confirm that the wreck was Carpathia. And they did that. Um, so, so they did that through a, a comparison based on, you know, the ship's blueprints and the um, identifying the corresponding features on the wreck. I love the way that it all kind of ties together with the discovery of the wreck and, and you know, the original story. When you were researching it, um, how did you find um, getting access to archives? I mean, was it, did you have a good variety of material to work with? I did. I, I remember being really nervous about this when I, because I'm coming from Australia and because I was writing this as part of my 
doctoral thesis, the university was paying for all of my research and expenses. So I had done all this research about where I thought um, particular sources might be, and I'd looked at ar archival um, guides, and, and so I identified a number of places, so the National Archives, the National Maritime Museum, the Canard Archives at the University of Liverpool, Merseyside Maritime Museum, which had the ship's arrangements, Tyne and Weir Archives, and I, 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 had this, I had this massively long spreadsheet of all these documents I wanted to look at, but the problem with archival guides is they're very general. So they'll say, oh, we have a file about, for example, we were talking about the, the name of the ship, Carpathia. They said, well, we have a file about canard ship names, but you don't know what you're going to find in that file until you have the file in front of you and you're looking <laughs> through it. So, so I was very nervous about what I was going to find, but oh my gosh, it was an amazing experience going to those archives and, and seeing all of those historical records and actually getting to... To, to actually you know, touch and hold documents that were more than a century old in some cases and uncovering those stories. And in fact, one of the, one of the things that I found, because we, since we were talking about the name earlier, which I think is really fascinating, is a letter in a file for, um, so this was at the Canard Archives at the University of Liverpool, and they had a file of ship names. And I, like I said, I was curious, what, why Carpathia? And in that file, I found a handwritten letter which had been addressed to the New York superintendent of Canard. And in it, it, it gave extracts from the Encyclopedia Americana and the Encyclopedia um, Britannica about what was listed under the name Carpathia, Mauritania and Lusitania. It was really interesting. It was like a handwritten letter and all of these three very famous ships were grouped together on this letter. And obviously this was before these ships were famous. And, and these extracts from from these, this encyclopedia. But that's not the most fascinating part. The most fascinating part is who wrote the letter. So it was signed by a man called Charles H. Marshall. And I recall as I read the name, it sounded a little bit familiar to me, but I couldn't place where I had heard it before. And it was only a little bit later when I was rereading an account from some of the passengers aboard Carpathia that I realized that Charles H. Marshall, who had written this letter in 1901, was the same Charles H. Marshall who was aboard Carpathia during the rescue mission and whose nieces had actually been aboard Titanic. There's a very famous story how he'd been woken, woken the morning of the rescue by a steward who had knocked on his door and had said, sir, your nieces wishes, wish to see you. And he had replied and said, my nieces are on Titanic because he'd actually slept through the rescue mission. So Charles H. Marshall had written this letter in 1901 with the names of Mauritania, Lusitania and Carpathia and these, these extracts. And he had been on Carpathia during that rescue mission uh, years later and his nieces had been aboard Titanic so that was one of the one of those sort of where research leads you into very unexpected but exciting places it happens so often with ships because there are so many people on these ships that you're looking at and you can find yourself going down very many rabbit holes and um, Jay thank you so much for sharing this story it's been absolutely fascinating really enjoyed it oh thank you Sam it's been my pleasure
Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube, where you will find some fabulous and innovative video material telling our maritime past in ways you have never seen before. That's guaranteed. Most recently, a wonderful video showcasing one of the finest ship models ever made, HMS Royal George, made for King George III in the 1770s. It has been filmed with the very latest camera technology, and it's absolutely extraordinary. For those of you interested in the Titanic part of this story, we've a lovely little animation of what we call the Titanic in miniature, explaining how a steam engine of the time worked, and also an astonishing flyover of a 3D model of the Titanic, which has been built using the ship's original drawings. It's all very much worth looking at. Best of all, however, do please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost you very much at all, but it supports this podcast. You receive four copies a year of the Mariner's Mirror Journal. You can access all of the previous episodes of the Mariner's Mirror Journal, and it's been published for over a century. You can come to the Society for Nautical Research's annual dinner on board HMS Victory. I think that's the best bit about membership. And you get to support the world's maritime heritage. There's no better way to spend a little bit of your spare change. You can find everything we do at snr.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.